Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today we're continuing our celebration of National Humor Month by discussing the original comedians, clowns. Richard Price, Associate Professor of English and author of Clowning and Authorship in Early Modern Theater, is with me to discuss the origins of stage clowns and their roles in William Shakespeare's plays. So let's just begin with when were clowns first introduced in theater? So the super short answer to that question is um, since forever, Um, like they've been there since the beginning. But we should probably back up. It might be helpful to begin by clarifying some terminology, what we mean by theater, what we mean by clowns. Um, I teach and research early modern English theater the drama of the English Renaissance, uh, most associated with, but not limited to, Shakespeare and his London contemporaries. Obviously, theater is much older than that, um, dating back thousands of years across a wide range of cultures, and each theatrical tradition had its own modes of comedy. Within each of those, they must have also had clowns. Um, We don't know much about particular actors in ancient Greek theater, for example, but we know that The plays of Aristophanes were extremely vulgar and explicit, featuring lots of scatological humor and sexual innuendo and lampoons of public figures. So the comedians who staged them must have specialized in things like impersonation, slapstick, crowd work, which are a very clown-specific set of skills. So that brings us to our second definition, which is probably the more pertinent one. Um, What's a clown? This term has generated some confusion because it's much more commonly used to refer to characters in plays than to performers. Even when experts in early modern literature hear the phrase Shakespeare's clowns, they think of a specific character type in Shakespeare's plays, um, namely low-class, dim-witted, clumsy, you know, unsophisticated, constantly misinterpreting things, simple in their tastes and very large in their appetites, both culinary and sexual. Um, The word clown in the period, in fact, literally meant rustic, someone from the countryside rather than the city, Um, sort of good-natured and well-intentioned, but um, clueless. So if you think about the Pixar movie Cars, um, the character of Mater, voiced by Larry the Cable Guy, is kind of a classic clown, right down to the the stereotype accent. Um, So these characters, uh, often cast as mischievous servants or bumbling oafs, were like a stock type in early modern theater. They derived from similar types in Roman drama, and they were very useful for the kind of plotting that these plays required, as well as for the kind of culturally unifying work that early modern theater as a whole was concerned with. But there is a different, narrower sense of the word clown as well that refers not just to the character, but to the kind of performers who specialized in these parts. Um, Playing companies, almost as a rule, employed among their several comedians a kind of comedian-in-chief, a single player called the clown of the company. And here, they were not marginal figures. These were core members of and shareholders in the company. They were named in the company's charter, They were often the ones who were recorded as taking payment for court performances, so really central, visible personalities in the organization. They were like the face of the company. If you were a serious troupe, you needed a clown. Um, Early modern English theater before Shakespeare, in fact, was mostly clowns. 
in the early 1580s, just a few years after dedicated playhouses started being built in London, but well before Shakespeare came on the scene, Queen Elizabeth I decided to cherry pick the best members of all the active companies at the time to form like a kind of super company under her own patronage, the Queen's Men. And half the actors they selected were clowns. By far the most famous among them was a man named Richard Tarleton, or Dick Tarleton, who was like an absolute superstar. He was easily more famous than any tragic leading actor would be in later generations. He was certainly more famous than Shakespeare himself was. Back then, um, much as it is in movies today, hardly anybody knew or cared who wrote a play. Um, they weren't especially even conscious of plays as written things, um, but they knew who the actors were, and the clowns were the star actors. They were the first real celebrities. So even though we think of their roles in plays as relatively minor and confined to the subplot, we know that their parts were always parts for one, so that the clown was never used to double other parts in the play. That actor was reserved solely for that role. And that's, that's very unusual. Um, this was a theater that, that doubled um, actors in different roles a lot. This tells us both that what clowns did in performance was very important and that they must have been doing a lot more than the surviving texts of those plays capture. So what was their specific purpose within the play? Well, okay, here's where things get kind of trippy. Um, and this, this kind of follows from what I was just saying. Um, pl plays for us exist principally as books, because that's how we encounter them. We tend to think of the experience of early modern theater as unfolding like a book does. When you pick up a volume of Shakespeare's collected plays and you turn to the first page of Romeo and Juliet, if you try to imagine what it was like to watch that play being performed live back when it first premiered, you picture an audience congregated in a big open-air amphitheater and they all you know, fall into a hush, they all fall quiet, and then out walks the chorus on stage who launches into his prologue, two households, both alike in dignity and so forth. And then that's it. The play is just suddenly underway and it runs uninterrupted until the end when the audience applauds and then equally quietly they all shuffle out. Um, if you remember the film Shakespeare in Love from like, what is it now, 20, 25 years ago, that's how, that's sort of how Elizabethan theater is depicted. And that's not at all what it was like. Um, the words in our books rarely correspond to the way plays were actually performed. And neither did the experience of playgoing in early modern England reduce simply to a single text called the play. Um, and more than any other performer, the clown was really the source of that difference. So for starters, early modern audiences were really unlike modern ones. They were drawn from a mix of occupations and social classes, ages, genders, backgrounds, levels of education, um, for whom commercial theater was like a relatively novel and experimental institution. Going to the theater was not the, the bourgeois activity that it is for us today, where you, you know, dress up like in your church clothes and you sit quietly in the dark and God forbid you forget to silence your cell phone. Um, that's mortifying. Like these were open air amphitheaters where shows started at two in the afternoon in broad daylight. So the audience was very much a part of the show. And indeed for some, it was the show. People came to see and to be seen and to make their voices heard. They were loud. They were opinionated. They were given to much freer norms of audience participation than we are. 
Um, if they didn't like something, they booed and hissed and they threw nuts or apples at the stage. It's still strange to realize that theater, like now as then, sells you concessions that can be weaponized against it. They're like, here, we're going to put these hard objects in your hands to hurl at us. Um, and if audiences did like something, they might burst spontaneously into applause in the middle of a scene um, or a speech or laugh uproariously or call out an appreciative response or demand that something be performed again. Um, in other words, either way, they were like compulsively given to derailing the performance. Um, the idea of theater as something that you sat through and passively consumed was totally foreign to them. After all, a large segment of them weren't sitting, right? They were standing at the lip of the stage. This is the, the group called the Groundlings, standing on the ground of the theater. They were on their feet the whole time, so they were working no less than the actors were. And in a very fundamental sense, they saw theater as a collective experience, something that they, along with the actors, were collectively producing. So that's, that's a lot of energy to contain. And if you're the playing company, it almost certainly means that the play is never going to go exactly according to plan. Um, that's a good thing, actually, because as it turns out, companies were not terribly invested in the play going according to plan. These were repertory companies. They were rotating through some dozen or 15 plays over the course of any given month. Um, at the same time as they were premiering or rolling into the repertory one or two new ones on a regular basis, all of these parts they needed to keep continuously memorized in their heads and ready to go at almost literally a moment's notice. Um, so negotiating all of this means having really wide margins for errors. Scripts that don't arrive fully finished, um, sometimes you get blown lines or blown scenes or scenes that need to get added on, um, like on the fly when a disaster happens backstage. You have to have techniques for stalling when things are in a state of unreadiness. And so in turn, that means that you need players who are really good at improv and crowd control. So um, enter the clown, literally. The first thing that these unruly audiences got when the day's playing began was usually not the play at all, but a solo performer who took the stage by himself to manage the crowd. Um, have you ever been to the taping of a live TV show? Like, I whether it's a um, yeah, I, I've, I think I've been one time, and it's a weird experience. It's really unlike the, the product that you watch at home. It could be a sitcom or a talk show or a game show, but TV studios employ warm-up comedians whose job is to come out and tell jokes and work the room and loosen up the crowd. They have to get people ready to laugh. Um, so it takes a lot of behind-the-scenes work to make the product that comes out of your TV. The early modern stage clown did essentially the same, except he wasn't just warming the audience up. Um, as we've seen, they've already like, arrived warm. His job was also to settle them down. If a crowd was too headstrong or too insistent on being heard and recognized, they're going to constantly disrupt the performance. Um, so in a sense, it became the, the clown's job to absorb all that energy and harassment himself to keep it from invading the play. Uh, so most of his interactions with the audience are structured as games in which the audience tries to get the better of him and he tries to get the better of them. Most of the time he won, um, although, of course, we tend to hear mostly about the performers who were good at this. There must have been many right. who sucked and yeah. got pounded off stage that didn't <laughs> last in the business. Um, so think about it again, like in a modern analogy, as the contest between a stand-up comedian and a heckler. If you've ever been in a club where that happens, where a heckler starts starts talking, 
you can immediately feel like there's a heightened sense of tension and anxiety. Everybody's holding their breath to see if the comic can withstand the abuse and like put the heckler in their place. Um, in fact, like it's worth thinking about why that scenario still happens all the time today. Like it doesn't make any sense. People are paying money to go to the club and just hear themselves. Like why? So the same impulse is still being activated upon. So in the process, the stage clown is teaching the audience something really fundamental and profound about how theater works. Like namely that this is work, not just anybody can stand up here and do this. Um, so gradually through figures like the clown, the clown whose routines were almost always improvised and um, were never recorded as part of the text of any play, audiences are starting to learn that they don't make theater, that the actors and playwrights do, that plays have scripts and that performances are supposed to stick to those scripts that what we're doing up here is like producing a product, a commodity. So ironically, clowns were teaching audiences how to be audiences and consumers, all under the guise of just making them laugh. What were some of the tactics that they used? Like you had mentioned that there you know, was kind of this game between the audience and the clowns. What were some of their tactics? And not just to you know, make people laugh, maybe to make them calm down. Yeah, it, it sort of covers the gamut. Um, there's a really wide range of genres. Different clowns developed their own styles and their own shticks that became kind of their trademarks. Um, which playhouse you frequented was a big part of your identity as a playgoer. And that choice depended in turn on which individual clowns you liked and had an affinity for. But we can, um, we can review, we can survey some of the different genres of performance that these comedians innovated by kind of mapping them onto the structure of the theatrical event. Um, and think about the clowns as kind of presiding over that whole event like a master of ceremonies, like an MC. Um, they would appear at the beginning before the play. They would pop up at various points in the middle to kind of give you something extra and see how you're doing um, during the play. And then they would take over the stage once more at the end after the play was over. So few of these genres really had their own names. People just kind of describe what the clown did as if it needed no explanation because they weren't aware that they were talking to posterity when they wrote this down. Um, that guy I mentioned, Dick Tarleton, was responsible for inventing a lot of them. He was reputedly really homely and had a large bulbous nose and he used to open the show with a little bit that was predicated on how instantly recognizable he was and how eager fans were to see him. So there was no front curtain to the stage back then, the way that we have now with the proscenium arch stage. Um, it was a, a bare thrust stage. But at the back of the stage, there was this little recessed area called the discovery space where a small curtain was hung to conceal a door that led to the tiring house. So you could use it to sneak items on stage. You could dramatically discover things. That's why it was called the discovery space, like you know, pulling aside the heiress to show the body of Polonius after Hamlet stabs him for eavesdropping. So Tarleton would poke only his nose through that curtain. And then like somebody in the audience would catch sight of it and point, but like, look, he's here. And then gradually more and more of his body he would expose and people would point and squeal and delight that he was about to make his first appearance. This little comic striptease became sort of a clown tradition. And we hear about other stage clowns still doing it 60 years later. So, Thereafter, um, Tarleton seems to have done like a pantomime bit where he made grotesque, silly, funny faces. The crowd would 
yell out things for him to imitate. Um, like, you know, be a drunk or now be a baby and now be an animal and they pick whatever animal they wanted. And he would just become that thing. Um, again, they're like imitators. Years later, a clown called Thomas Green did such a convincing imitation of a baboon that it like genuinely freaked people out. There's really little narrative to build on here. In order to make this funny, you have to be a really gifted mimic and also able to find inspiration in anything to make it a kind of a story. So picture somebody rubber faced like Jim Carrey and also extremely volatile and high energy like Robin Williams, but combined all in a single package. Um, so throughout this, the clown remains something that the crowd wants to control and that also eludes their control, but they don't ever fully have control over him. And that's kind of the, the tantalizing aspect of it. Um, the prelude that, that best exemplifies this was something called themes, which was also created by Tarleton. So here the audience takes turns shouting out a theme on which the clown has to rhyme extempore. Um, so his ugliness or the weather or um, like a church bell that happens to ring in the background or his wife's infidelity. Often these themes um, from the audience would just take the form of rhymes themselves. So it would escalate the encounter into a kind of rhyming contest between the spectator and the clown, like a freestyle rap battle. And the object is to continuously one-up each other. The spectator is trying to stump the clown. And the retorts invariably devolve into like really withering personal insult. Um, we often hear about the loser in this exchange, usually the spectator, actually being shamed into departure, like they just <sighs> turn tail and leave the playhouse, um, humiliated. So a spectator will shout, um, "Methinks it is a thing unfit to see the gridiron turn the spit." I'm like wait to see what Tarleton's answer will be, and Tarleton replies, "Methinks it is a thing unfit to see an ass have any wit." And everybody cracks up, and that's it. It's a pretty good comeback. You're not gonna, you're not gonna come back from that. So there was apparently a lesser clown called William Kendall. We don't hear much about him. Who's not as good at this as one needed to be. During this one performance at Bristol, which is on the border with Wales, he decided it'd be a really smart idea to make fun of the Welsh and to call them like all cuckolds. Whereupon a man in the crowd cried out, "The horn, like the cuckold horn, the horn becomes the Saxon best." I kiss thy wife, suppose the rest. And Kendall, we're told in the punchline to this joke, was put to silence. So like, damn, I mean, how do you recover from that devastating one-liner that comes from the audience? The, he, Kendall couldn't, like this is a hard job. Um, so after this point, the clown might turn up anywhere in the play um, in a scripted or partially scripted or totally unscripted capacity. Um, these comic interludes or merriments, as they were sometimes called, often existed in a very ambiguous relation to the script. We're not sure how much they were actually part of the play. Um, Will Kemp, who was Tarleton's successor as the preeminent clown of the early modern stage, appears in a play from the early 1590s called A Knack to Know a Knave. And the title page of this quarto advertises, um, with Kemp's applauded merriments of the mad men of Gotham. So there's no byline on this, this playbook title page to tell you who the author was. But the clown is so famous that he actually gets blurbed on the front page of the book. And yet when you open the book to find this episode, the episode itself on the page amounts to very little. Like at one point, we have a bunch of citizens who are gathered around because they're expecting the king to pass through their town. 
and they are having a debate to decide which of them will deliver a petition to the king. And when the king finally arrives, one of them says, um, sir, here's our petition. And the petition just asks permission for them to brew ale three times a week. And the king is like, um, sure, fine, whatever. And they all disperse. And that's it. That's the end of the scene. Like, that's what gets advertised on the title page. How did this deserve big neon lights on the title page? We don't really know. I mean, probably all we're seeing here is a blueprint for the scene, maybe like a framework around which the actors improvise with a lot of physical comedy that the text can't capture. But the question still remains, why you would want to buy a copy of that framework only? Um, then again, why did anyone ever buy a playbook, which is no less an empty shell of the performance? So finally, at the end of the show is where things get really interesting. Um, from Tarleton onward, playgoing ritually ended with the performance of a stage jig. And today the word jig means just a little informal dance, but this was a whole dramatic afterpiece with characters, a plot, dancing, singing, and the, cloud, the clown takes the lead role. Um, this was sort of an obligatory thing, no matter whether the day's play happened to be a comedy or a tragedy, you got a jig at the end. You may have just watched Romeo and Juliet die oh and everyone is in tears. Mm -hmm. And now Will Kemp comes out um, playing an apprentice who's trying to prevent his master from finding out that he's having sex with the master's wife. And they chase each other around and somebody gets a bucket over their head and kicked in the rear end. Audiences loved the stuff. They loved jigs. For some people, it was more of an event than the play itself. Um, we're told that they would rush the playhouse doors at the end of the play because now you no longer needed to buy a ticket to enter. And the atmosphere during the jig was so raucous and, like, for lack of a better word, orgasmic, that it gets described as a kind of whirlwind or cacophony or a mosh pit. Um, this one observer says, um, the stinkards, that's his term for the audience, the stinkards speaking all things but no man understanding anything. That's a really terrifying prospect if you're a city alderman. Um, jigs activate the most destructive potential of theater to degenerate into a full-blown riot. And in 1612, they were briefly abolished. They tried to just abolish jigs. And everybody pretty much ignored that ban. Um, Kemp was especially beloved for his jigs, many of which he published. For a time in the 1590s, he had more titles in print under his own name <clears throat> than William Shakespeare did. So we really need to think about the clown as like a rival to the playwright. Um, we hear about playgoers spilling out into the streets after a performance, chanting Kemp's jig. Um, and now the amazing thing is that none of this stuff is in any playbook ever. Like if you open up Shakespeare's plays or any other playwright's plays, you get no sense that, that these events are happening in the periphery of the play. It's just act one, scene one, until the end. And it's it's much more of a variety show. So how did, speaking a little bit of Shakespeare, how did Shakespeare change the role of the stage clown? And how were they different than the pre-Shakespearean clown? That's a good question. Um, so yeah, this is a complicated story, Shakespeare's okay. relationship to all of this. It's, it's, so Shakespeare's, are you surprised to hear that it's a complicated story? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Shakespeare's, capaci Shakespeare's capacity to change what the stage clown did was, by definition, limited because um, his influence is confined to how he writes the clown's dramatic role in the play. That's his part. Um, so to be clear to listeners, we're switching now from talking about what the clown does outside the play 
back to what he does inside, where we can observe it, where we can see it in the text. Um, but you've asked a really good question that will eventually lead us back outside again. So Shakespeare, as he always seems to do, occupies a unique place within the early modern theatrical ecosystem. On the one hand, he was unusually permissive with and trusting of the clowns in his company. But on the other hand, he also seems to have invaded their territory in really sneaky ways. Um, to appreciate this, we have to create a context around him. Uh, we have to compare him to how other playwrights of the period wrote for their clowns. So for the sake of illustration, at, at one end of the spectrum, um, you have somebody like Christopher Marlowe, who wrote just five or so years before Shakespeare's career began. And his plays feel very much like the product of a different era, a different decade. Um, remember that during the 1580s, clowns were still kind of the kings of the stage. Unlike Shakespeare, Marlowe was a freelance writer. He was unattached to any specific company. He didn't have personal working relationships with most of the actors. And in some of his plays, it seems like he just lets them do whatever they want. He doesn't care. Um, so, for example, in Dr. Faustus, a play about a scholar who sells his soul to the devil, there are whole scenes that consist of nothing but clowns goofing around. Um, Faustus's servant, Wagner, gets a hold of his conjuring book, and he threatens to use it on some guy named Robin. We don't even know who Robin is. He's just like this dude. Um, he threatens to use it on some guy named Robin unless Robin becomes the servant's servant in turn. And after some bad puns and jokes about food and sex, Robin ends up getting chased off stage by devils. In another scene, now Robin and his friend Rafe have the book, and they use it to get out of paying their tavern bill. So we just get this sort of Russian doll sequence of like increasing like parodies of the main action with these, these, these peasant clown characters. These scenes feel like vehicles for open-ended improvisation, and they probably were. Um, Dr. Faustus exists in two distinct texts that were printed a number of years apart. And in the later one, not only are the clown scenes, the clown scenes different, um, they're also longer, as if stuff that the comedians came up with in performance during the intervening years eventually migrated into the permanent text. At the other end of the spectrum, you have a playwright like Ben Jonson, um, who's writing half a generation later than Shakespeare, who's extremely intolerant of clowns. Jonson was the first real auteur of the early modern stage, somebody who felt that the playwright should be calling all the shots and getting all the glory. And he wrote these incredibly long, meticulous plays with almost no clown characters, many of them for children's companies who had no clown performers whatsoever. And in these plays, not a syllable was allowed to be out of place. And Johnson gripes about it to no end when the actors invariably make mistakes in performance. So Shakespeare falls somewhere in between these extremes. On the one hand, he differed from both Marlowe and Johnson in not being a freelancer. He wrote more or less for only one company his whole life, the Lord Chamberlain's men, who would later become the King's men. And he knew these actors intimately. He knew their strengths and weaknesses as well as they did. And he seems to have been quite content to let them use their assets. It was his job, as we said, um, to concoct dramatic scenarios that are designed to let them exploit their own talents to the fullest. Um, so for roughly the first half of Shakespeare's career, the company's clown was Will Kemp, who we've talked about. And um, we've seen that he's cut very much from the Dick Tarleton mold. Um, his persona is this blunt, down-to-earth, every man who gets into trouble anytime he's forced to grapple with learning or with big words, uh, but who also 
doesn't mind being the butt of the joke sometimes. Shakespeare's parts for him are like blank canvases that allow Kemp to explore different aspects of this persona. So in The Comedy of Errors and The Taming of the Shrew, he plays servants who patiently suffer endless beatings at the hands of their masters, uh, but who also get their own stage time to vent about it. In The Two Gentlemen of Verona, he plays a servant who gets blamed for the misdeeds of his incorrigible pet dog. And in Romeo and Juliet, he plays an illiterate servant who needs to ask strangers to read the instructions he's been given and who gets into fights with musicians. So you can see a pattern developing here. These are all really just variations on the same character who are all in turn variations on the persona by which Kemp is already known to his audience through his jigs and through his his extra dramatic activity. But Shakespeare's also opportunistic and kind of greedy. Um, At the same time as he's recognizing the independence of the jig, he's also subtly encroaching on it. Um, Toward the end of the 1590s, he starts leaving these little openings at the ends of his plays for the jig to grow out of it. So at the end of Love's Labor's Lost, we're left with this this plot point unresolved of how uh, Custard, the the clown character, is going to win Jacquinetta's hand in marriage. At the end of Much Ado About Nothing, we're told that Dogberry, the buffoonish constable, has arrested the villain Don John. But we never see Don John punished, which we're kind of expecting to. At the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Bottom, um, the attention-hogging leader of the amateur actors that we affectionately call the Rude Mechanicals, promises Duke Theseus that they want to conclude their performance of Paramus and Thisbe with what he calls a Bergamasque dance. And all of these are almost certainly Kemp's parts, and all of these seem like setups for the jig to follow. Um, But they also are attempting to annex the jig as like a continuation, an extension of the play. And they implicitly require Kemp to stay in character, um, which is a character that Shakespeare's written for him. So if you're Kemp, do you see this as a compliment? Like, I'm I'm not sure he did. So, yeah, that's, that's, I think that, that probably covers Shakespeare's attitude toward it. So other than Kemp, um, who were some of the more well-known Shakespearean clowns? And what was their their specific contribution to comedy and the theater in general? Okay, well, so the next person that we have to talk about in this context is Robert Armin. Um, Kemp left the Chamberlain's Men in 1599. Um, nobody knows why, but what I just told you suggests that there might have been like creative differences between Kemp and Shakespeare. I mean, it's all conjecture. It's it's a nice story. We'll never really know. Um, but he kind of left on this solo career and eventually returned. Um, he traveled for a while and he returns to London and joins a different company. Armin is a comedian who's come up with a different company and was hired to replace him. And Armin is a radically different kind of performer. Um, whereas Kemp established this bond with the audience in their shared lower class sensibility, their lack of pretense, Armin's persona seems to have been very distant and aloof. He was not an athletic performer like Kemp. He didn't dance or do slapstick. His specialty was vocals. He was a singer, and he was something of a ventriloquist. He was also a lot more literate and cerebral. Um, He considered himself a student of folly in the humanist sense. He wrote a book called Fool Upon Fool, which is an anthology of jests by and 
unfortunately about the mentally disabled. Um, it should be said here that Elizabethans were unapologetically cruel in their treatment of the disabled, whom they called natural fools. Um, these, these people were often kept as wards in or by aristocratic households, like for entertainment, because their unpredictable, accidental witticisms surprised and delighted others. Um, so this, together with performers, professional performers who merely pretended to be mentally disabled, artificial fools, um, this is sort of the origin of that, that other strain um, that's in the background here, the, the figure of the court jester or the fool. Um, so instead of jigs, Armin made the game of themes that we mentioned earlier with Tarleton. He made themes like his post-show signature. And he used it to showcase both his vocal talents and this new weird comic persona. Um, he published these routines too, so we can actually read what they were like. And they're very difficult to reconstruct. Unlike in um, the Jess books that record Charlton's themes, that's where most of that material resides. Just in joke books, people telling anecdotes about funny stuff that Charlton said. Um, unlike in those Jess, book, Jess books where it's really clear like what the structure of the exchange with the audience is. It's clear when the clown is talking and then when the audience is responding. Armin doesn't differentiate his voice from the crowd's. Sometimes it seems like different spectators are responding to each other. And sometimes it seems like they're the only ones talking and Armin's not talking at all. And it's entirely possible, in fact, that the reverse is true, that all of the voices are Armin's and that in this version of themes, the audience never got to talk. He just kind of performed them in a virtuosic polyphonic display that must have been at once like charming and fascinating and also kind of bizarre. Um, sort of like uh, an, Andy, an Andy Kaufman routine where he'll start off in an accent and then unexpectedly drop it. Or he'll start crying as if he's having a breakdown and then turn his sobs into music. And you never know like what's real and what's part of the act. Armin was very avant-garde in the same way. Um, he was always tempting you with the possibility that his folly was natural rather than artificial. Um, so Shakespeare had a new comedian to work with now. This sort of takes us back to the story of the collaboration between playwright and actor. So once again, he used the resources that were at his disposal. Um, Armin forms the bright dividing line in Shakespeare's plays between the clowns of the earlier plays, which are designed for Kemp, and we've covered some of those already, and the fools of the later ones, uh, which are designed for a new performer with a very different set of gifts. So in As You Like It, for example, um, Touchstone is literally a court jester, like that's his character. It's sort of an establishing role for this new performer to introduce him to the audience. And Festy in Twelfth Night is exactly the same. Um, he's a kind of traveling, he's a minstrel who travels back and forth between aristocratic households. Both characters sing, um, neither character fully participates in the same reality that everybody else seems to occupy. That's even truer of a later role like the fool in King Lear he doesn't get a name. He's just called the fool um, who speaks in riddles and for no apparent reason just disappears from the play halfway through. Nobody knows why. Um, so although Armin could play more conventional rogues and rascals um, like the ballad monger and pickpocket Autolycus in The Winter's Tale, it's hard to see what audiences enjoyed about him. It's hard to see what they enjoyed about Armin. But they clearly did, um, as did Shakespeare, who seems to have taken quite seriously the philosophical potential of the persona that Armin developed. 
Um, if you think about it, like Armin's specialty was playing multiple people at once. Um, and Shakespeare's roles for him, like the snarling misanthrope Thersites in Troilus and Cressida, who kind of has conversations with himself, occur in plays that are likewise asking what it means for us to see ourselves as others see us, to sort of be, to exist outside of our own bodies, for our self-image and our self-worth always to be a function of and bound up in the perceptions and subjectivity of others. Um, so you're like, are you ever really yourself? Are you just seeing yourself as others see you? Are we really individuals or are our own personalities just amalgams of everyone else we come into contact with? So here again, it becomes kind of inaccurate to call Armin Shakespeare's fool, no less than it was to call Kemp Shakespeare's clown. In both cases, it's their solo work on stage that's giving Shakespeare the ideas so that their characters in his plays can be better described as collaborations between actor and playwright. So again, a different way of phrasing it, what happens inside the play is always on some level in dialogue with and like an extension of what's happening outside it in the parts of the performance that we can't see because our texts don't document it. So before we end, um, it's easy to see how these stage clowns have influenced comedy today, but I would love to get your ideas on how some ways they have influenced modern day comedy. That's a, that's a good closing question. It's, it's, tricky. I mean, there's a there's a big gulf of time and space separating early modern English theater 400 years ago and what we know today as the contemporary Anglophone entertainment industry. So it's hard to pinpoint an exact route by which any one specific aspect of stage clown practice survives today. I mean, after all, um, the, the London playhouses were shut permanently by order of parliament in 1642, once the English Civil War began and it became important to the government to silence dissent. And the first thing you do is you close the theaters. Um, and the theaters stayed shut for a generation, such that when they reopened in 1660, a lot of the institutional culture of pre-Civil War theater was just gone, it was just lost. Very few former actors were still in the business to remember how things were done. And the audiences for which they performed had different needs. Um, the, no one built huge open-air amphitheaters anymore. The new theaters were all relatively small, enclosed spaces, seating perhaps five or 600 spectators at a time, rather than several thousand, which is what you had with the, the Elizabethan amphitheaters. So the composition and the dynamics of audiences were different. Theater is now a more exclusive and upscale affair. And so the custom of having clowns begin and intersperse and end performances just sort of drops away. Um, and for the first few years of theatrical performance during the Restoration, most of the plays being performed were revivals of pre-war drama. I mean, it takes a while for people to start writing new plays. The audience knew these plays first and foremost, as their Elizabethan counterparts did not, as texts. Like that was how they knew them as books, just as we do. And there was less of a sense of theater as a live, spontaneous, collaboration between actors and audience that could end, you know, any number of ways. So those play texts remain the primary means by which the stage clown survives today, even though, as we've seen, they preserve only the dramatic characters and they erase most of the clown's extra dramatic behavior. But also, as we've seen, those characters already preserve the extra dramatic within themselves too. 
But even beyond that, that doesn't mean that the influence of these generations of stage clowns altogether disappears or is extinguished. Um, English players were renowned throughout Europe for their comedic skill, and they regularly toured the continent. Uh, there, they would have come into contact with other performers, like practitioners of the Italian Commedia dell'arte, and they must have learned things from each other. Um, Commedia gets imported into England in the late 17th century, and when that happened, it's entirely possible that English audiences were getting bits and pieces of their own clowning tradition filtered back to them. Um, the harlequinade becomes the, the dominant form of theatrical afterpiece. And it's really like a mashup of Commedia dell'arte and the English stage jig. Um, you get an extended slapstick vignette that's usually in pantomime, um, centered on like a love triangle or a sexual liaison between Harlequin, his mistress Columbine, um, her father Pantalone, who's usually trying to resist the match, um, and two new characters who emerge on the scene, uh, Pierrot, who's Pantalone's servant, and this buffoonish antagonist who's called simply Clown. Um, from these two characters, it's kind of a straight line, from Pierrot and Clown, it's kind of a straight line to the two 19th century types um, of like the mean, scary circus clown and the sad, crying clown that most people still picture today when you, when you say the word clown. Um, as, as embodied by Shakespeare's characters, clowns are, of course, very much still alive. They still provide the template for the clown characters that we enjoy in like the sitcom formula. Um, Cosmo Kramer from Seinfeld, right? He's the, the hipster doofus who's always kind of crashing into Jerry's apartment to the cheers of the studio audience, like exactly the same as when Charlton enters, um, tripping over stuff and mooching food, doing socially inappropriate things, and he seems to exist in a different reality from everybody else. He's like a textbook Elizabethan stage clown. Um, but the essence of stage clowning, of course, the, the solo performer standing up, you know, telling jokes, inviting talk back from the crowd, taking the stage and trying to defend it, persists through more of a process of convergent evolution, just by virtue of the universality of comedy itself. Um, that, that from generation to generation, it's kind of the same thing. We've, we've rediscovered that art form, I think, in the 20th century. It's a distinctly American one. It's, you know, stand-up comedy. Um, I think that has something to do with the American commitment to democracy and freedom of speech, um, which even though we shouldn't confuse Elizabethan England for a democracy, it's not, um, is those things are inherent in the social experiment that playhouses represented. Um, how does the individual define themselves through or against the group? How does a gathering of individuals become a group, um, become an audience and improvise for themselves a collective experience. Um, theater is like a laboratory for figuring out what different forms of social organization are possible. And society, like theater, is at some level always an improvisation. It's a form that we're making up as we go along. And that is an inherently risky, dangerous exercise in which to participate. That was Richard Price, Associate Professor of English. For more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu.